Hi, I'm Charles. Hi, I'm Bailey. And you are listening to Hold Me, I'm Scared. Welcome back to Hold Me, I'm Scared, where each week we take a fear and explore it. This week, we are talking about serial killers. Yes, one of Bailey's <laughs> favorite. All she does is spend time listening to true crime podcasts. That's true. So, this is her dream episode right here, running a true crime podcast. And yet, r- writing this report nearly drove me to madness. Yes, um, not through any fear of her own. She's just sick, feeling not so well. So she's repping it, but she's here. I'm here. She's queer. And she is ready to smear my ad campaign. Oh, she is drinking a White Claw. Is White Claw beer? No, it's a a spiked seltzer. So it's water. (laughs) (laughs) So it's water. Mm, Watered down alcohol with bubbles. They sold that to you and you just bought it. And I like it. Sorry, White Claw. I mean, you can still sponsor us. That's okay. <laughs> Not No shot at you. I'm sure it's delicious. Yeah. I'll even take a sip. It's fine. Hi. Can you get it together, please? <laughs> oh, no. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I have so much snot. Well, listen. Besides how gross that is, um, let me ask you... <laughs> What are you afraid of today? Ooh. Um. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty nervous that this report is going to end up being incomprehensible, and I will I will explain it to you when we get to me. Um, but yeah, I'm just well. You're first. So. I know. I will explain it before I start, but I'm just I. I got so many headaches in the course of writing this and in the course of having Wikipedia write this for me at times Mm, mm -hmm. Um, because it is just so convoluted and it was like a story that I thought I knew and then it turns out that apparently no one knows because every fucking website you go to has a different version so I had to be like an investigator and try to find the truth. And I'm not confident that I did that, but I, it will be a story. Okay. Um, well, I have a new fear now. Um, no, um, I'm... Uh, I'm afraid today mm-hmm. of lawnmowers. I know what you're saying. Charles, lawnmowers, that's a random. Well... I had a coworker who um, her lawnmower got caught in a tree. She has like a zero turn mower, and um, it started to flip backwards while she was on it. So she stuck her hand up on the tree branch, tried to push herself back down, and then her arm got stuck, twisted in between the branches. Yeah, so she's doing all right. Um, the blades did not fall on her. She was not cut up into a million pieces. She's mostly doing fine. Um, yeah, just pretty shell shocked as anyone might be. So lawnmowers. Can be fun, but yeah. can also be your death. <laughs> Lawnmowers. Look for that at episode twenty. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah, I remember being like really afraid of the weed whacker when I was a kid. Mm, the weed whacker. 
Do you remember the <laughs> weed whackers? Um, uh, yeah, yes, Bailey. I remember <laughs> weed whackers. Do you remember weed whackers? Do you remember the sky? Do you remember trees? Well, I guess it's just that now that I live in a city, I like never see them. But I used to live out in the country, and so we'd use them all the time. And my mother just like drilled this fear into me. She was like, "If you see someone." using a weed whacker, do not go near them because at any moment, a rock could fly out and smack you in the face and blind you. I mean, that's pretty dramatic. She was right about the rock. Um, as far as blinding goes, not sure how accurate that one is. Um, rocks I mean, it could do happen. Fly if a rock f- hit you in the eye, y- you might be blind. Okay, but honestly, probably what's going to happen most of the time is you're going to be like, ow! Where'd that come from? I don't know, man. We had a rock, like, crack a window in our house once. Well, maybe the... you should have been nicer to rocks. Maybe. Maybe Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I, he's so good looking, even still. I saw on TikTok that you did that thing where you just, like, sing along whatever you're attracted to mm-hmm. a person, mm-hmm. and you sang along with him. We were singing along at all different people. We're, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this. You go for scrawny, tall, pale, weird dudes who aren't like exactly Slender weird. Man. Like, <laughs> like Slender Man <laughs> who frequents the coffee shop. I go for guys who look like a rectangle and who look like they eat footballs for lunch. Yeah, your boyfriends could beat up my boyfriends. Yeah, and we but like it that your way. boyfriend might be able to outsmart mine. So listen, <clears throat> I've got some facts and figures, man. I sure do. I love that for you and for me. It, okay, so this is from thephobiawikia.org. There actually is a name for the fear of murderers or serial killers in specific called phoniasophobia. <laughs> Phoniasophobia. Um, Like I said, if you're murderers or serial killers or of being murdered, the fear is usually triggered after hearing news that somebody got murdered or of hearing of a person on a killing spree or more rarely encountering people who killed other people. Oh my God. I think I've, I think that happened to me. That you killed somebody or you had phoniasophobia. No, neither. Phineasophobia. Phineasophobia. First of all, I'm pretty sure that you just made that word up right now. But second of all, I think I've seen someone who who just killed someone. I don't know why you're looking at me. (laughs) Have I told you about this? I went to Austin to visit my friend who was going to college there. You have friends? Well, not anymore. I'm just kidding. No, I do. Um, But I went to visit them at college, and we, while we were there, someone got stabbed on campus, and they, like, sent out this alert to all of the students describing the person who, like, did the stabbing. Also, weirdly, I was, at the time, at a hookah bar with the Austin, Texas football team. I don't know how that happened um okay but so we decided to go back to the dorm right because there's like a stabber on the loose and we on the way back to the dorm we pass this guy who like 
fit the exact description of the person from the alert like was wearing the exact same clothes was like the right height and they had like he like had his hands like in his pockets and like looked all weird and we both noticed it and we just tried not to make eye contact and went back to the door but they had like their jacket like pulled really like tight over their shirt and like their hands in their pockets and it he looked like exactly like the guy that was described and it could have been however it could have just been some cold dude in austin texas in the summertime he had um an iron deficiency oh right okay that makes sense never mind (laughs) um (laughs) yeah so that's crazy i don't think i've had well i'm sure i've had a run-in with somebody who killed somebody but i'm sure we all have but uh i mean i feel like that's statistically possible i feel like it's yes possible um not probable but possible um so people suffering from phoniasophobia would usually lead to anthrophobia which is the fear of people as anybody could kill them and then thanatophobia, which is the fear of death as an act of killing and hello, as an act of killing result in death. That's not a real sentence. That's definitely um, not a sentence. Okay. Well, we're just going to continue. Um, from psychology today, um, we have, it says, <laughs> it's called, the article is called, Do You Have Real Fear Serial Killers? I think it has more words than that. Um, But it says, in reality, the number of serial killers is quite low. Gary Rogers, a retired homicide detective and forensic coroner who became a crime writer, commented that less than 1% of murders in the U.S. are at the hands of a serial killer. That number is around 300 serial killers currently in existence, making up to .00064 of the U.S. population. So, now, you still can be murdered. But probably not at the hands of a serial killer. So that's good. Um, Also, we have from abajournal.com called Serial Killings Are Waning. Um, The number of serial killings actually surged in the 1980s and has been dropping ever since. So that's hopeful. Um, In 1987, there were 198 separate serial killers active in the U.S. compared to only 43 in 2015 and two in 2019. Um, The database defines serial killing as the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. And when a serial killing is defined as the killing of three or more victims, the number drops to 138 serial killers operating in 1987, 26 in 2015, and the number still remains at two for 2019. Now, here's what I find really interesting from thisinterestsme.com. Um... They compiled a list of 161 serial killers from 30 different countries, and this list contains the worst, quote-unquote, serial killers that were born between 1900 and 2000. These killers, with the highest um, number, go by uh, sun sign, zodiac. And guess who's number one, Bailey? Oh, of, out of the zodiac signs? Mm-hmm. Gemini. Nope, nope, nope. It's Pisces! Hey! <laughs> to anybody who didn't know, Bailey is a Pisces. There are 19 serial killers out of that list who are Pisces. It's because we're so emotional. 
Which is weird because Pisces are like the emotional gentle people, but I guess those emotional gentle people are vulnerable to snapping, maybe. Um, how fun for them. I fall, one, two, three, four, fourth in the list, Aquarius with 15, so I'm only four behind you. Um, it's because people see us as emotionally cold and maybe we just get mad about it. And we're also very weird. Scorpio is next. Who is surprised um, under Pisces? Yeah, that makes sense. Scorpio. Scorpio tracks. Scorpio. You the scorpion. They got the tail. Um, what, you don't like that? Well, it's, uh, it's just... They've got the tail. Nothing to do with anything. Have you seen a scorpion's tail? I have. Have you seen a fish's tail? Yeah. It tracks. So zodiac signs with tails are more likely to kill. Yes. Wow. Thank you for bringing these important facts to the discussion today, Charles. I mean, I know it doesn't make sense according to this whole list. And just in case you would like to all hear where you fall on the list, I will read it as follows from top to bottom. We have Pisces at number one, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Aquarius, Capricorn, Aries, Cancer, Taurus, Gemini, Leo, Libra, and with the least killings, Virgo. Congratulations, Virgo. We're all very, very proud of you. (laughs) Is that the first time you've heard that? Probably. So, Bailey. Yes. You have a little story? I do, and I have a would you rather. Okay, so you're... Okay. Would you rather... Spend the night in a in a house like that is designed to kill you. That doesn't sound nice. What's the other option? Be hunted for sport. Oh boy. You could survive, right, theoretically either. Yes. Um <clears throat> but I feel like a house is going to be more booby-trapped. So I might not know when it's coming. I could cross a threshold and be guillotined. Um, But the same, I mean, if it's a good human hunter, you wouldn't know when they're coming. Well, but I feel like I have more of a chance at escaping one person or maybe a couple people than a giant house. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, Both have their perks, both have their cons. You know, maybe I could throw a candlestick across a doorway and see what happens to it, but also that candlestick could blow up in my hand. Um, but at the same time, I could be running through the woods and hear people's footsteps behind me and make it because I have good ears. Or maybe they could chase me into a house that's designed to murder me. So either way, I'm not going to win. I'm going to go with Be Hunted for Sport. Okay. What would you choose? Um... I would probably also be hunted for sport. Okay, so see, you get on to me, and then you pick the same one. Well, I just want to make sure that you have, like, you know, all of the information to make an informed choice. (laughs) Because one of these will be happening to you. Oh. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, These are your plans for your birthday next year. I'm starting early. Oh, my God. Like an escape room, but real. Yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that, but nope, you're being hunted for sport, so... To anyone who can't see me, I'm Debbie Ryaning at Bailey right now. Um, 
All right, so I'm going to tell you about America's first serial killer. H. The first? Holmes. The first. The man, the myth, mostly the myth, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) The legend. Uh, Yeah, he was first and foremost just like a a big old liar. Um, Big old liar. Big old liar. (laughs) Um, but also a, a, a deadly killer. Okay, so he was born uh, with the name Herman Webster Mudgett, which I is mean, much less intimidating. With a name cool. like Herman Mudgett. You're either going to be like a character on the Muppets or a serial killer. And know? he looks like he fell into one category. He did. Found um, his, his stereotype. So, he was born in 1861 in New Hampshire to Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. Those are some names. I hate Uh, the last name Mudgett. I'm sorry if anyone's listening with the last name Mudgett. It's bad. It is bad. It's bad. We're not going to have to say it very much because he didn't like it either, apparently. So, um, he was like... He had um, four siblings and he was like dead in the middle of them. Um, his father was pretty wealthy and, um, his, both his mother and his father were like descendants of the first English immigrants to the area. His father worked as a farmer, trader, and a house painter at different times. And his parents were also devout Methodists. Um, so, okay. Something like kind of weird happened to H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes when he was a kid, back when he was still Herman Mudgett. So these kids were, like, bullying him, and they decided to shove him into this, like, doctor's office, which Herman was, like, super scared of because there were, like, all these rumors that there were body parts all over the doctor's office, and, like, it's kind of like how there's, like, a town haunted house, like, the the doctor's office had, like, all this lore with the children. Okay. (laughs) So they lock him in the office, and in the office, there wasn't, like, body parts strewn about, but there was an actual human skeleton. I guess, like, back in those days, you know how, like, doctor's offices will have, like, an anatomy skeleton? Yeah, or, like, sometimes. classrooms? I guess back in those days, those were just, like, real. Well, I guess so. I mean, that was the founder of the town, I guess, or just somebody they found. The skeleton? Yeah. Oh, we don't know who that was. <laughs> but that was Mudgett Sr. Um, no, Mudgett's dad is still around oh. at this time. We don't know who the skeleton was, but the point is that Herman is locked in this room with a skeleton. And instead of being scared, he's like, that's pretty cool, dude. He likes I, it. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then he, like, develops this big interest in medicine from this, like, what was intended by the bullies to be this traumatic experience, which, like, big F boys, like, you helped this man discover a lifelong passion when your intent was to bully. (laughs) That's just scary, but instead he was like, I think I'm gonna be a doctor. Like, oh, this is sort of into this. So he, you know, got into medicine right away, and during his childhood, he would reportedly trap animals and perform surgeries on them. Oh, now, 
We both know. That's Once you guy. start doing the animals bad, there's no hope for you usually. Yeah. Ooh. Um, like, what do you do if your kid, like, if you find your kid, like, dissecting an animal? Like, Dissect them. I think, do you just, like, send them away? Or do you, what do you do? I gently put the scalpel down and say, this is something we cannot do. <laughs> no, thank you. We cannot do this in the house. We cannot do this, period. This is not okay. Uh, I have, like, a family that I babysit for, and we tell their kiddo, you know, he's learning not to hit. So we say, hands are not for hitting. So we'd have to be like, Herman, hands are not for dismembering animals. Right, or like, animals are for petting, not dismembering. Um, it's also rumored that he might have killed a childhood playmate. You know... Okay. We don't know. Look, we're really, like, we're picking up. <laughs> that's, I, I found that, and then, like, there was no elaboration on it at it's all. It's just like, he also might have killed a kid. Anyway, he went anyway, to college. So, at the age of 16, he graduates from Phillips Exeter Academy, and the next year, he marries his first wife, um, Clara Leverlean, in Alton, and they have a son, Robert Leverlean Mudgett, uh, who was born on February 3rd in 1880. What's I her last name? Leverlean? Lovering. 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 With, uh, does it end with a G? Yeah. That's cute. Lovering. It is cute. I like the name Clara, too. She had a much, like, name-wise, they were not a good match. She had a, a much better one than he did. Right. Herman Mudgett and Clara Lovering. Like... Yeah. So then Holmes, like, he's got a wife, you know, he's he's getting up there. It's time he settles down. So, uh, you know, he's 17. He has a wife. He's got a kid. He starts an apprenticeship um, in New Hampshire where he's from and where he's living now under Nahum Wright. Sorry, Nahum White. Wicked? What the fuck? W-I-G-H-T. I'm going to go with White. Okay. Um... Who's, in some sources say that this dude is the doctor whose office he was locked in as a boy. Uh, when the he, OG. Like, yeah. So he apprentices under him, and apparently Dr. White was a noted advocate of human dissection as a means of study. So, Like alive ones, like a vivisection, or like dead? No, like dead. Like, okay. like using cadavers for research, which is apparently, you know, like very pertinent to Herman's interests. Um, so during this time, he and Clara are not getting along, um, which is crazy because he sounds like such a great guy. Um, so she takes her son and she moves back in with her mom. Um, okay. So now he's a bit older. He's a bit wiser. At age 19, uh, Mudget enrolls. <laughs> I got to stop using Mudget, man. Uh <laughs> He enrolled in the University of Vermont, but he dropped out after uh, a year because he just, like, didn't like it. Um, while enrolled at this university, the wife at the owner of the boarding house in which he was staying discovered, and, like, trigger warning, a dead baby under Herman's bed. Now, it's it's not 
uh, someone he killed, but it was a cadaver that he'd taken home from the university to practice surgeries on. He claimed it was a part of his homework. Um, so sh- she told him not to bring a dead body into the house again. <laughs> but was and like he's nineteen, you know. You know it- she was like, "It's cool, but like, don't do it again. It smells really bad." <laughs> according to what I've read. Um, so <clears throat> he then, uh, after dropping out of the University of Vermont, he attended the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. And this time he and Clara had like reunited and he took her and his son with him. However, fellow boarders um, who lived with Herman and Clara uh, reported that he was like abusive to her. Um, and violent, and she soon returned home again, effectively, like, ending the marriage. Um, but it was never officially ended. Uh, but they, like, according to her writings, it seems like they didn't speak after this. So, Herman went on to graduate in June of 1884 after passing his exams. Uh, he was, like, a pretty average student, and he worked in the anatomy lab because, you know, he had a particular interest in dissection. Um, during his college years, uh, he stated in his autobiography, so, like, this dude goes on to write an autobiography because we need more people like this to tell Herman's really turning out more than I expected him to. Yeah. Oh, my God. Just wait. So... He later stated in his autobiography that during his college years, he would use these cadavers to, like, run insurance scams. So, basically, he would (laughs) take out insurance policies on the dead people as if they were living people. Then he would burn or disfigure the bodies and then turn them into the insurance companies so that he could claim the life insurance. Like, he would be like, oh, like, this totally living person that I took out an insurance policy on has been in an accident. I didn't even know insurance policies were a thing that long ago. Oh, yeah. This is like ye olde progressive, ye olde farmers. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is like one of those things. Okay, because like I said, this dude's like a big fucking liar. So... He says that he was doing this, and he, we do know that, like, later in his life, we'll get into it, he did run, like, a lot of scams. So it's, like, pretty possible, but it's also, like, not confirmed. So, anyway. Uh, following his graduation of college, he briefly moved to Moore's Forks, which was in New York. I don't know. It might still be. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but there he proposed. It's, keep in mind, like, so he's still married to Clara. They're just, like, separated. Uh, but in Moore's Forks, he proposed to two more women, uh, and one, Minnie Everett, refused his proposal and is reported to have stated, there is something lurking in that man's character that time will reveal. I do not like him. I firmly believe that he would commit murder. A woman's empathy. A mm. woman's intuition. Can yes, we always go by it? Yes, Minnie. Maybe not mine. But but definitely Minnie's. De- yeah, she's she's more she's credible. On it. I feel like I I feel like it's possible that I could date a killer for like a while. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You found that one. Well, you had a description. Never mind. What did I say? Dated. Uh, you found the one at the campus that you just talked about. 
Yes. But, but I said I you had not... a description. Yeah, I did not. I think you might have already dated a killer. You think? Somewhere <laughs> in there. Um, I mean, I'm such a slut. It's bound that, like, one of them has been. Um... <laughs> and even not okay. dated, like, somebody. I think we both had run-ins with, like, one or Some... two places Some that, of... like, we should have died. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, sidebar. I went on a Tinder date once. <laughs> When I was, like, at, like, a, a rough time in my life, and I was not making the smartest choices, I'm not advocating that anyone pull shit like this, uh, but I did, and I went on a date with this guy, and we went to, we met in a public place, so I did that good. We went to a park. Um, he was, like, pretty cool. He was attractive, and we, like, walked around and talked and I like really liked his personality um he then he was like hey let's go get ice cream we went and did that got ice cream and then you know I was like can I see your house which is my line and it has a hundred percent success rate wow so so then and I don't recommend doing this um if you go out with a guy like a tender date like you know, maybe vet them a little more than a 30-minute walk around the park and then a stop for ice cream at Sonic. But I went back to his house, and um, he opens the door, and, like, I shit you not, there is no furniture. Oh, God. And if there's there is, a tarp, Bailey. There's a tarp? No! <laughs> I'm dead serious. Like, it sounds fake. I'm serious. He was just painting, of course. So I'm like... Huh. And I look at him, and he goes, I know it looks bad. And I was like, it it looks pretty bad, dude. Um, and he's like, uh, yeah, like, why don't you just come in and I'll, t- I'll explain. And I was like, maybe you should explain here on your porch. Um, <laughs> Before I get wrapped up in that tarp. And he told me, like, hey, I just got a new job in, like, a neighboring city, I'm moving there. All of my furniture is already there. Um, but, like, I have, like, a TV, and I have booze, and I have a blanket, and we can, like, watch a movie. And I was like, sure. Okay. I'm willing to believe this. Um, <clears throat> and it turned out it was true. And he, like, it was all true. We, like, stayed Snapchat friends uh, for, like, years. And he would randomly send me videos of him doing celebrity impersonations. See, I I went on a date where I should have been murdered. (laughs) I think you might have just not been the victim that day. You know? You think? You passed the vibe check. Well, so he was working in, like, media. So he was, like an on-air personality so he definitely did have the job that he told me he had in the city that he told me he was moving to however i mean i also could have just been so cute and charming that he decided to let me live right like i said you passed the vibe check maybe you weren't his type to kill you know it's like first of all i was his type okay well yeah you were his his type but like (laughs) Um, I'm everyone's type. I'm universal. I mean, would you like me to continue the sidebar with my almost death, or would you like me to save mine for later? No, I. Why not? I. I. I probably only have like you know two hours left in my story. Oh God, that was another one of my fears. Um, I listen. I'm pretty sure I've been in a lot of very dangerous situations where I 
should not have been with men. However, um, there was one that I didn't even pull the right card first, okay? Here's just a PSA. Somebody that you meet on the internet, don't meet them at a date at their house. (laughs) It's not a good idea. Um, did I die? No, I'm still talking to you. However, um, I walk in and he's like, this is my room. His room is the garage. Not totally weird, but it just gives that like, you know, murdery vibe. He also is a fantastic painter and he primarily paints male bodies. Okay. I I appreciate Uh. male body beauty for sure. Um, but it also kind of gives the impression like maybe each one he paints is each one he's killed. Um, he also, he didn't look great. Um, <laughs> Wait, he kind of looked like you saw his picture, right? Whenever you uh-huh. selected yeah. him. I wasn't at a good place in my life. Um, he, uh, yeah, I would have at least gotten murdered by a hot person. Yeah. He looked like a serial killer. Um, great. You know, it was not my usual type. Kind of ugly in the face. Um, what if he and listens to this podcast and you really hurt his feelings? He can get over it. Um, <laughs> he also was a horrible kisser. You know when you kiss somebody, there's like a push and a pull, a nice little rhythm. Okay, there was not that. It was like a dubstep remix played backwards through some sort of strange filter. Like it... It was just, it kind of felt like kissing a a fish who was scared, um, <laughs> but also was swallowing gallons of water. Okay. Uh, yeah, we watched a horror movie that set the wrong tone, The Conjuring. Um, he fell asleep while holding me, which sounds nice, until I realized he was holding my wrist with one hand, and every time I moved, his grip would tighten. Oh and my god! I dude. was like trapped in in the clutches, quite literally, of this man. And he tried to like make moves on me in advance. As when I told him, like I wasn't like ready for that. Like we just met, right? And he was like kept like trying to, and I was like, dude, like stop. And he finally did. And then I was like, I'm gonna set an alarm because like I have like somewhere to be, quote unquote, tomorrow. I was like, I have work tomorrow or whatever I said. And he was like, okay. And so then I set an alarm and, you know, my good actor side kicked in and was like, Charles, when this alarm goes off, you have to be convincing. You don't want to leave, but you have to leave, unfortunately. Uh, So the alarm went off and I just kind of stretched for a minute was like oh my gosh we both fell asleep that's crazy and he was like oh my gosh yeah like I don't really want you to leave and I was like oh my gosh like I really don't either and I pulled him in for a gross fish mouth kiss and I was like I'm gonna sell this real quick and like while I'm doing it I'm like slipping on my shoes and like grabbing myself and be like oh my gosh like this is crazy. Like, I just don't want to go. Like, I can't believe we met. Like, I feel so fortunate to have met you. Ew. Um, I don't know. So Ew, I, that's too much. You don't need to do all of that. I don't know one exactly time, what I did. All I know is that. One time after I slept with a guy, he asked me if I wanted to go get breakfast, and I just laughed at him and walked out the door. Listen, I was not exactly smart, but I was smart enough to 
I don't know. I, I played how I felt because I felt like if I were just going to run, he would have stopped me. That's what I felt in my soul. Okay. Is that if I were just a bolt, he was going to like, and he was bigger and stronger than me. So like he could have just grabbed and whatever. So I like slunk my way to the door and was like, see you later. And the moment I closed the door behind me, which I got like a slight look into his living room. It was like dimly lit. Didn't look like there was much furniture, but well, he's I just, living in the garage, so well, yeah. So I went straight towards my van, and as I like locked my van and turned my um, the ignition on, and the lights lit up the front of his house, he was just staring through the front of his blinds, like his head. I just saw like his head and like the light reflect in his glasses, and he was like peeking through the blinds, like staring at me, and I was like, oh my god! I was like, Charles, get out of here! And then I texted him and was like, yeah, this isn't going to work out. And he was like, yeah, I figured. And I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> it turns out your acting wasn't as convincing as you thought it was. <laughs> I think he said it figured because I didn't text him at all the next day when he was like, oh. whatever. And then like, I didn't text him back. Yeah, you were definitely going to die. Yeah. Um, anyway. Anyway, back to mu- That's one of those mudget to- situations. I'm going to use uh, that as like a new curse. We've all met a mudget. We've all met a mudget. Who's your uh, mudget? Comment on our social media. <laughs> we can be found on Facebook and Twitter, Twitter and, and Instagram. Instagram at Hold Me I'm Scared. Or HMIS Pod. You can also, if you have a story you want to tell us about your mudget, you can email it to HMS, it, hello, to HMISpod at gmail.com and we will read it on the air. Yeah, well, or, like, anything that was, like, related to any of our past stories. We definitely, like, I'd love to hear it, Even honestly. something that just, like, weird happened to you. We want to hear about it. Right, did you cough and sneeze at the same time? What came don't, out? Don't email it. Don't email us that. But anything that's, like, even remotely related to anything scary, please send our way. HMISpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear about it. Okay, back to Mudget. Minnie Everett, he poses to her. She's like, this dude is a killer. Okay. Um, so this is in New York where he'd moved after he graduated. Um, he also, in New York, got a reputation as, like, a swindler or a con. Um, he did, like, everything possible to avoid paying his rent. Um, like, made up every, like, excuse and, like, I don't know, just straight up lied to people. There's also a rumor that spread that he'd been seen with a boy who later disappeared um, when he was, like, questioned about it, he said that the boy had returned to his hometown in Massachusetts, uh, but he quickly left town in the middle of the night after that rumor gained traction. <laughs> and Doesn't his really debts help had, you out. Yeah, and his debts had also piled up at this point, so whether it's that or the fact that he killed a boy or both, we're not sure, but anyway, he bolts in the night and heads to Chicago. Okay, so it was his intention to find work in a drugstore in Chicago. But he gets there and he realizes that he needs a pharmacy license to do that. Um, So he goes to Springfield and he does this, like, three-day examination and he passes. And when he passes, it's announced in the paper. Because I guess, like, they fucking announced anything in the paper in the 1800s. But it's announced in the paper that Henry Howard Holmes has passed the bar for pharmacy education whatever get a budget that is the first time that this alias is used and now he's no longer herman budget he's h.h holmes Ooh. 
Okay, so on the way back to Chicago, he had spent some time in in Minneapolis (laughs) where he uh, started dating and then married a woman named Murda Belknap. Now, keep in mind, he's literally still married to Clara. Um, He's proposed to other women, but they were, like, smart enough to say no. Not that I'm blaming Murda. That sounded bad. Anyway, Murda... Murda. I guess it was like, okay, this is so mean, but I, she was reported to be like ugly. Uh, oh, Murda. But her, but her parents were rich. And sometimes that that's the same as being beautiful. Um, so that was, that was all that H.H. H. Holmes needed. Um, so he takes Murda. They move to Chicago. And he gets a job working at a pharmacy as H.H. H. Holmes. Okay, so report okay so this story like i said aj Holmes was like a huge fucking liar and then like also is the 1800s so journalistic integrity is not super a thing um there's a lot of editorializing so a lot of his stuff is really murky so there's a widely reported story that when he started working at this pharmacy at this drugstore the owner um like had passed away and his widow had hired Holmes who then convinced her to let him buy the store and then the widow went missing and was never seen again but mm-hmm. it seems like this might be a myth because there's multiple sources that say that um this was like a rumor but that it turned out that he basically just ended up buying the pharmacy from a very much alive couple who continued to live on many years after that um so eh Maybe he murdered them, maybe he didn't. Okay. It's time to talk about the murder house. So, not American Horror Story Season 1. No, but American Horror Story Season 6? Hotel? 5. 6 so, is Roanoke. Okay, so 5 is like... It's based on like the Cecil Hotel, but it's also loosely based on this. On her whole on H. Yeah, H. I, Holmes's murder castle. Like, okay. Yes. Okay. So, in 1887, Holmes buys this empty lot across from the drugstore, um, and he buys it with Murda's family money. So remember, she's rich, and he starts construction on this large home there. He has the ownership put in his wife name, his wife's name, because at this point. And this is Murda, not Clara, obviously. Um, And then uh, at this point, he has so much debt piled up because he's like literally never paid rent um, and has like run quite a few scams. And uh, so he's got a bunch of debt. So to avoid people finding him, in addition to having this new name, he also puts ownership of the home in his wife's name. Um, And then so he builds, he starts construction on this home and he like, refuses to pay his builders. Uh, So the builders who were from the Aetna Iron and Steel Company sued Holmes in 1888. And he was like, hey, I'm not liable for this because uh, my building's owned by my mother-in-law since he used Merida's family money and put it in her name. It's so much easier to scam people back then. Oh my, like literally so easy. And people like talk about him like he was this like very charming, handsome, intelligent con man because for some reason we like always want to suck the dick of murderers whenever we tell their stories. But uh, basically like it wasn't that fucking hard, dude. Okay, so 
He's like, uh, hey, not my problem. My mother-in-law owns this place. So then the the Aetna Iron and Steel lawyers start showing up at the house um, to document that H.H. H. Holmes is very involved and is the person commissioning the building of the home so that they can continue to sue him. Um, and then, so they show up and he's like, um, actually guys, one of the steel beams that you provided me is too short. So therefore our entire contract is void. <laughs> Which like, from what I've read, seems to have worked. Uh, like he represented himself in court and like, what? <laughs> Does everything this man say just like spin gold? Like, what is this? I don't know. Um, okay. So he also, during this time, would buy, like, a bunch of goods, both for the store and for, like, the home, on credit. Um, and then he would sell the goods for cash and just pocket it. So he would never pay the creditors, <laughs> but then <laughs> he would, like, sell the goods and pocket that money. Um, and so in one case, he purchased this super heavy safe um, and, like, a huge safe um on credit which apparently in the 1800s you literally just had to be like i'll get you dude like i i'll get you back yeah i remember like (laughs) reading in history books like when credit was first introduced like it suddenly became like a huge problem (laughs) yeah because it turns out like you can't yeah you have to have integrity and like some sort of system with it yeah, not that I think our system is the best. Can you imagine, fact, though, there were just stores you could go to and be like, just put it on my tab? I'll get you. I'd love. i love. Yeah. The only place you could do that now is, like, a bar. And I can't tell you how many times I've just... But they take your they take your card. So you're like, just put it on my tab, and they keep your card for the night. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to Uber back to a bar at, like, 2 a.m. because I left my card. Oh, no. <laughs> um... Okay, so he buys this huge safe on credit and, like, never pays. So they call the repo men to come out and take the safe. Um, and they come. Okay, so so what he'd done is he bought this huge safe, and then he had the construction crew build walls around it so that when the repo men come to take the safe that he never paid for, he's like, sure, you can take it, but if you damage my building you're going to be liable. So they, the repo people like tried for hours to figure out a way to extract this safe without damaging the building that he had commissioned be built around it, and they couldn't get it out without tearing down a wall, so no. they just had to leave it. <laughs> so he just like gets the safe for free. This like, dude's ah, wild. Ah, Holmes, you've, you've got us again. I'm just going to start doing that. I'm going to start stealing shit from stores and just, like, building a wall around it and being like, okay, but you can't damage the wall or I'm going to sue you. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, during this time, during the construction of the house, working out as a pharmacist, he and his second wife, concurrent wife, because he never gets divorced when he gets remarried, um, have a daughter, Lucy. She's born in 1889, and um, so Murda and Lucy live in Wilmette, Illinois, um, and, but the house is being built in Inglewood in Chicago, so Holmes often leaves them alone while he's, like, tending to business at the pharmacy, and he's, like, overseeing the construction of the home. Um, so he, like, carries on 
affairs and stuff away from them. Um, so then we're coming up on um, 1893. So um, it's been announced, It's and it's not 1893 yet, but in 1893 it's been announced that Chicago is going to be hosting the World's Columbian Exposition, which is this like huge cultural event that was supposed to last from May to October. Wow, that's cool. Um, it was like, yeah, it was like the biggest like fair slash like like inventors came and like displayed their inventions. It was like the biggest the biggest event ever, and um, it was to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus, quote unquote, discovering Ugh. America. Yeah, which why was it? Ha- why did it have to be ruined, man? Yeah, yeah, um, but uh, so he adds a third floor. So he they'd already built a basement and two stories and he adds a third floor to his his big castle um saying that he's intending to use that as a hotel to like host people for the world's fair or for the world's Colombian exposition also known as the world's fair. Okay. Uh so during construction Holmes hired and fired several different construction crews and it's speculated that he did this like one to avoid paying people but two also said that like no one really really catch on to what he was doing uh because essentially what he was doing was designing a murder castle so and it was nicknamed so the place was nicknamed the castle because a three-story building uh at that time was like a big building so like everyone in the neighborhood oh, yeah. referred to it as the castle um but it was like a nightmare. Um, so the the castle had like three stories and um, two upper levels contained Holmes' office and over 100 uh, rooms that were to be used as living quarters. Wow. Uh, so some of these rooms were soundproof and contained gas lines. Like Now that's sus, Mr. Mudgeon. <laughs> yeah, they contained gas lines like directly into the room. Uh, so that homes could asphyxiate people. And then throughout the building, there were also, like, trap doors, peepholes, stairways that led to nowhere, and chutes that led into the basement. And the basement was designed like a, like a lab for homes. Um, it had a dissecting table, a stretching rack, and a furnace that was used as, like, a crematorium. Um, sometimes he would, like, send bodies down the chute and like it's rumored that he would sometimes with an assistant maybe um but like dissect them skin them and then sell them as human skeleton models to medical schools um the impact one's childhood can have right um and then he also would sometimes like cremate bodies or put them into ass like acid vats because he had those in the basement too this is this is wild so that's what he's making and um he has like you know his pharmacy is successful because he never pays for anything so it's just all profit so he's like uh making good money and he has some employees and they start to kind of notice some strange things um he once asked a worker to like step inside the safe you remember the the safe mm-hmm, that he mm-hmm. bought or that he not bought um and like was like hey when i close this door scream as loud as you can i want to see if this is soundproof 
Um, and then a janitor at the pharmacy said that Holmes once showed him a collection of fake beards and various other disguises. Just, you know, normal stuff. Very okay. normal. So, let's talk about the murders. Okay. So in 1890, Holmes, did, so this is like he's gearing up to build, like he's, he's in construction for this hotel on the third floor of his building um and he decides that he's going to sell his his drugstore business um but he like of course this was a scam (laughs) so when the new owner took possession of the store the repo men come back and they're like yeah we're here to take all of the store's stock because it was never paid for (laughs) (laughs) um and so Holmes, like... And he built he, walls around him very quickly. So he, he just, like, erected, like, 80 tiny walls around each individual item of stock. Okay. Um, but Holmes, like, he didn't work at the drugstore anymore, but he was, you know, having construction in the lot across from it, and he was... He just, like, hung around there a lot. Um, so he happened to be there when one of his new investors showed up, um... And that investor, and, like, this is when, like, stuff's getting repossessed and, like, ooh. And that investor inexplicably collapses outside the store. But luckily, Holmes is is the first person to go to render aid, and he pours this brown liquid down the man's throat, and the man dies. And that is, like... brown liquid, Bailey? (laughs) That's, like, the most, like, uh, universally accepted, like, as his first, like, confirmed murder um everything before this has been like pretty much a rumor but like what would i put it past him no okay um but i guess like nothing really comes of that and it's just like man it's the 1800s that's weird <laughs> like there's yeah, no, yeah, the, there's no like dna like testing there's no like whatever yeah, it's or, like, just toxicology like, reports it's like ah, yeah th- he, he sure is dead all right weird um so another one of his early murder victims. So remember, his wife and his daughter are like. Sometimes that they're living in Wilmette, and they do eventually move to the house in Inglewood, the murder castle. Um, but I'm not sure exactly when this takes place. But one of his early murder victims is a mistress that he had, um, Julia Smith. So Julia was married to Ned Connor. And they had moved into Holmes Building. They'd been working at the pharmacy. And um, after Julia's husband found out that her, his wife was having an affair with H.H. Holmes, uh, he was like, I'm out of here. So he quits the job at the pharmacy and he leaves Julie, Julia and uh, their daughter Pearl behind. Um, so Julia takes custody of Pearl and she stays at the hotel and continues dating Holmes. Um, on Christmas Eve of 19, 1891, Julia and her daughter Pearl disappeared. Oh. Um, Holmes later claimed that Julia had died uh, during an abortion that like went awry. Um, but what happened to them was like never confirmed, but it's like widely believed that yeah, I mean, he killed them. Come on. <laughs> um, another uh, woman, Emmeline Sigrand... Grand. Um, she uh, was also likely a mistress of H.H. H. Holmes. She had begun working 
in the building the following year after Julia and Pearl disappeared, and she disappeared that December. So, like, Julia and Pearl disappear in December of 1891, and then in December of 1892, Emmeline disappears. So. Come on, Mudget. I just never find her. Okay. So... That's 1892. 1893, uh, an actress named Minnie Williams, uh, or she was like a retired actress, moves to Chicago. And Holmes says that he met her at an employment office. Um, but there are rumors that like they may have already known each other. But regardless, she moves to Chicago. He offers her a job at the, the hotel um, as like a stenographer. Um, and while he's while she's working for him he somehow manages to persuade Minnie to like give him the deed to her house in Fort Worth or like to this property that she owns there um to not him actually to Alexander Bond so um Minnie Williams is working for H.H. Holmes and he's like hey Minnie you know what would be a really good idea is if you signed over your property to Alexander Bond who was just H.H. H. Holmes. I was like, yeah, who's Alexander Bond? Did I miss something? So, um, in April of that year, uh, she agrees. She transfers the deed, and Holmes is the notary. So he's the notary <laughs> on the transfer of a deed to himself. He is the one-man show, I tell you what. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't say he's not independent. Um, so... That the following month in May, um, Holmes and Minnie, they, uh, for some reason, they're like pretending to be man and wife and they rent an apartment in Lincoln Park in Chicago. And, like, you know, just fun things. I don't really know what the reason for this is and I couldn't really find it anyway, but I'm, I also think it's probably likely that they were dating like having an affair um she wasn't married but he still was to two women but so they were in an apartment together and then minnie's sister annie comes to visit uh in july and she uh wrote so like minnie's sister also apparently thought that minnie and uh minnie and henry holmes were married um, because she wrote to her mother that she was planning to go with her quote unquote brother Harry to Europe. Um, so I guess like AJ Holmes had told her like, "Hey, I'm I'm married to your sister, and we're all gonna go on a trip to Europe." Uh, but then Minnie and Annie disappear. Oh my god! And Holmes has Minnie's property and this apartment that they got together. Um, okay. So, meanwhile, this is going on, um, the World's Fair is starting because Minnie and Annie go missing, quote-unquote, on July 5th in 1893, and the World's Fair was supposed to last from May through October of that year. And so so he said, like, after he's caught when he's, like, telling his story, he says that, like, uh... Or, like, and other people say there's this big mythology that he did actually use the castle for its intended purpose as, like, both a hotel and also, like, a martyr castle during the World's Fair. And the mythology is that, like, the business was booming and he lured countless women to their deaths. But there's no record that he ever took a single paying customer. Hmm. And it seems like more of his... So, like, 
this place did exist and it was like a death trap. And I do think like it's very possible that people did die in it. But it seems like the primary reason for like this whole um, for him telling everyone that he was like creating this hotel was so that he could convince investors and creditors that he would get a windfall of cash during the World's Fair. So he like that's how he like he got his house paid for. He got like a bunch of like goods and stuff for the house on credit because he was like, yeah, all just... these people are going to come and stay. Exactly. There. Yeah. Because it was like so many people came. Yeah. It's like um, a six month long World Fair. Like... It was it was like the event of the century. Um, and, but none of his investors or creditors ever saw a penny back. And there's not like a log of any paying customers. Um, so in August of 1893, he sets the building on fire and opens an insurance claim, uh, which like the, his insurance company then sues him for arson. Like, no, dude, we're not going to pay you because you set your house on fire. (laughs) And that gets all like tied up in the courts. Um, so with mounting lawsuits from his insurance company and also presumably from like all the people he'd screwed over, um, he decides to leave Chicago. So he bounces around for a while from like Denver to Fort Worth to Texas to St. Louis and then ends up in Philadelphia. And during this time he gets married again. He's still married to at this point, three other women. He'd married another woman in there. Right. So it was like Um, the fourth one. Yes. So, like, he had various mistresses. This is, like, his fourth and final wife. Um, Because, so he married Murda, he married Clara, then he married Murda, and then he married another woman, but we don't know much about her. Um, She's, like, kind of just, like, a blurb in all of his, like, all of the information I could find about him. So, then he marries his final wife, who's 23 years old, and she's got a $2,000 inheritance. Kind of big back then. Yeah. So... During his travels, he hooks up with another scammer named Benjamin Peitzel. Okay. So Peitzel and him, like, they start running, like, some scam, like, various scams together. Peitzel gets arrested for passing, like, forged checks. And while he's in jail, Holmes is like, don't worry, dude. I'm, I'll take over paying your life insurance premiums. Okay. So... Pytel's gotten in trouble with the law, and, like, I, I, from what I've gathered, it seems like things aren't going so well for him. So, he and H.H. H. Holmes agree to concoct the big scam, okay? We're there. This is, like, you know how in all, like, the heist movies, it's like, all right, one last big one, right, boys. Right, this is the, and- the big one to get all the cash. It'll be the last one they do. It'll be yes. set. Okay, so Peitzel and Holmes concoct this scheme for Peitzel to fake his own death so that his wife can collect his $10,000 life insurance policy, which she was supposed to split with um, H.H. Holmes and Jephthah Howe, um, who was an attorney, like this like sleazy attorney who linked up with Peitzel and Holmes. Um, okay, so basically the scheme is supposed to take place in Philadelphia, and Pytzel is supposed to uh, set himself up an identity 
as B.F. Perry, an inventor. And then they're going to make it look like he was uh, killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. So Holmes is like, I know how to do this, man. I did it back in my college days. I'm just going to get a cadaver. We're going to blow it up. We'll say it's you because it's the 1800s. Everybody will be like, yep, sure. (laughs) And, uh, And then your wife will get the money. We'll split it. Okay. But... So it's like, sometimes it's reported like Peitzel got cold feet, but for whatever reason, throughout the planning of this scheme, one night Holmes shows up at Peitzel's door, and they like drink a little bit, and uh, Holmes knocks him unconscious with chloroform, and then sets his body on fire. This dude is too much. Like, (laughs) it's too much. Yeah. He's like, like, what is he doing, dude? Like, <laughs> I don't know. He's like the owner of Chicago and America and like. <laughs> and he has got so many wives. And then he's finally found like another person who seems to be like almost as shitty as he is. And he's like, instead, I'm just going to kill him. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going right, to. Might so. as well, you know. Um. So when Holmes is later caught, he talks about killing Peitzel and he says that. Uh, Peitzel was still alive after he was chloroformed, and so he was, like, alive when he was set on fire. But but he was unconscious. But then, like, forensic evidence, I guess what what they could figure out um, in the 1800s, was that the chloroform had actually been administered after Peitzel was already dead. No. And that, yeah... And they think, like, it's, like, speculated that this was, like, to, like, fake, like, that Holmes did this to, like, try to, like, fake a suicide um, in case he was charged with murder. I don't know. It's very confusing. Um, so he, like, goes to Peitzel's insurance company and is, like, yep, th- this he's dead and he was and is like here's his corpse because that's how you used to like collect insurance you just like be like there's their dead body money please uh but the money goes to Peitzel's wife who 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 Holmes has convinced no no dude like Peitzel is not dead it's it's the scheme like he he's still alive he's in hiding so she doesn't even know oh my god he is like I guess he just must be one of those, like, real convincing people. I guess, like, you know, like a lot of serial killers are, like, that charm or whatever. Like, why does everyone believe this man? Yeah. Um, I don't know. So, she, but, like, I mean, Heitzel and Holmes had been, like, partners, right? So, I mean, I guess, and, like, they had had a scheme that they would do this very thing. That they would fake his death, present right. a, a so body. Right, so she has really no reason to, like... Not believe him. Okay. But, um, so then, like, she gets the money. He's, like, it's part of the scam. He takes his cut. And then he's, like, listen, your children should, like, be in my custody. Um, three of her five children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. And, um, so her oldest daughter and her youngest daughter stay with Mrs. Peitzel, and he takes the kids um, to Canada, and he uh, also, like, takes Miss Peitzel on a parallel route 
Um, and he's like all the while like using all these aliases as he's traveling and 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 just being like really weird. And he, Mrs. Peitzel still thinks like her husband's actually like alive. He like moves Mrs. Peitzel. So basically, Holmes presents the the real corpse of Peitzel to the insurance. Um, and like he, he collects the insurance payouts um, because uh, Peitzel's wife thinks like it's part of a scam because Holmes has convinced her that it's part of the scam and it's not like his real body. It's the cadaver just like they'd planned. Okay. Then he also, and I, the reasons for this are unclear, but he convinces Mrs. Peitzel to let him um, have custody of, like, three of her five children, um, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Um, so... Which is crazy. Yeah, and then, like, when Mrs. Peitzel, like, inquires after his children, he, like, continuously lies about, uh, their whereabouts, and he takes them to Canada, and while he's traveling, like, to Canada with them, he, like, uses multiple aliases and, um... And then he he realizes, like, in route with the children that he is wanted for, like, various crimes, like insurance fraud, all the, like, schemes that he's done. Um, they're not, like, he hasn't, like, been caught for murder yet, um, but he's wanted for, like, all the, like, schemes that he's pulled. Um, so I think, like, it, he may have, like, panicked, um, but... Um, unfortunately, he murders the three children, Alice, Nellie, and Howard. So Alice and Nellie, who are like a little older, uh, he forced them into a large trunk and locked them inside. Then he drilled a hole in the lid of the trunk and he uh, like put a, a, a hose in the hole and then attached one end of the hose to a gas line and then asphyxiated the girls. Oh my gosh. And um, he poisoned eight-year-old Howard. So I'm wondering if, like, maybe he was... Because it's unclear, like, why he took the children. Um, and I'm wondering if, like, maybe he was planning on, like, somehow, like, getting money. Like, like some, like, maybe, life insurance policy on the yeah, kids Yeah, like, or maybe something. he was going to take out life insurance on the kids. Or maybe at this point he's just bored, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, he's done he, everything else. So he buries their bodies in the cellar of his rental house, which is at 16 St. Vincent Street in Toronto. Um, the bodies are later discovered by Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective who was searching for Holmes, who was wanted. But how the, this is how he gets caught. So he gets caught uh, on November 17th, 1894, after being tracked fra- uh, in, to mm-hmm. Philadelphia, or after being tracked to... Um, Canada from Philadelphia by the Pinkertons, which was, like, this famous, like, detective agency. Um, so he, uh, do you want to know what he was arrested for? What was he arrested for? An outstanding warrant for horse theft. Not horse theft. In Texas. Out of all the things. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding horse theft. He's arrested for the horse horse theft. And then they discover Alice and Nellie's bodies um, 
in July of 1895. So he's arrested in November of 1894 for the horse theft. And then, like, they start investigating him on, like, further suspicion because they're like, why were you going to Canada? Like, why were you leaving the country? And then they find the bodies in July of 1895. Um, And then after the bodies are discovered, the Chicago police are like, you know what? We should probably check out that dude's murder castle. Um, and I mean, New, they didn't know. wild idea. Yeah, I mean, they, they just didn't know, but they're house. like, we should check out that house. Um, and so there's like all this rumor and all these like sensational claims that like they there were like bodies all over the murder castle, but like there's no record of any evidence found that would have convicted Holmes in that house. Um, but and and like according to the police that searched the house, like there are all the rumors of like torture equipment there are not true. But it was a very prominent rumor. So you right. decide. Okay. I'm gonna I for me and my excitement, I'm gonna say it, it was a murder house. <laughs> yeah. So through like further investigation, they like find enough to uh, put him on trial for the murder of Peitzel. Um, he's found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. Um, and they'd also found, you know, that he'd murdered the, and like, so during this process of like them collecting evidence, uh, to put him on trial for the murder of Peitzel, they also find that he's killed the children. Um, and, uh, they like go to him and they're like, Hey, did you kill anyone else? Um, (laughs) And he confesses to 27 murders uh, throughout Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. 27. Um, But some of the people he quote-unquote confessed to murdering turned out to still be alive. Oh. (laughs) Uh, He also uh, confessed to six attempted murders. That I Um, believe. In exchange for his, like, published confession, he was paid $7,500 by Hearst Newspapers. He was yes. paid? Yes, but he's, like, gonna be killed. Like, he's gonna be hanged. I don't know, like... What's I guess he gonna he do just, with that money? He was just in it for the, for the cash till the end. Um, so on May 7th, 1896, he was hanged at Moya Prison, which is also known as Philadelphia County Prison, which is much easier to say, uh, for <laughs> the murder of Feitzel. Um, and it said, like, until, like, one of the weirdest things was, like, until the moment of his death, he was, like, super calm, polite, friendly. Uh, but he did have one request, which is that his coffin was contained in cement and buried 10 feet deep. Uh, because this is a little bit of projection. He was really scared that grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissection. Uh, the, the double <laughs> standard here. Um, uh, but he did die really slowly because, like, so a lot of times what kills people when they're when they're killed by hanging is like their neck breaks but his didn't so he just like slowly slowly just choked out to death yeah i mean look no tears being shed for hh holmes right because like he at least killed a couple people people. yeah but like definitely like definitely more i feel like he definitely killed his mistress um and her 
child and clearly has no issue killing children. So, like, fuck him. Um, and then his body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, which is a Catholic cemetery in uh, Pennsylvania. And that, to the very best of my ability, <laughs> like, is the story of H.H. Holmes, America's first serial killer and a real big fucking liar. <laughs> Truly, what a ride. Right? I mean, it was all the it was all the scamming for me. Like like It's it's almost like for him murder was just like a means to an end. But but then it, there's like that weird thing of like he he has this like creepy passion for like surgery and anatomy. And so it's like did he did he enjoy it or was it purely just like he just was a con and if people got in the way of the con or if it was more convenient for someone to be dead he just like killed them maybe he just enjoyed both maybe but yeah there's so much more too i tried to i'm sorry that was really long i tried to condense it as much as possible but there's a lot of information out there and it is because it is such an old story and because he himself like lied so much in his confessions it's a really hard story to parse through um but it's just, regardless of, like, what you take and what you leave, it is a wild ride. Yeah. And I, I'm i sure there are much more rumors that even still circulate till this day. Which, yeah. what a man. Good old Mudget. Good old Mudget. It's the scams. The crazy, like, and how he just, like, convinces people, like, hand over the deed to their house to some dude that they don't know like how he's married all these women and how like he gets custody of these children like yeah he's just like hey you know what you should do you should give me your house or you should give me your kids and people are like okay i mean okay yeah like he's like they say he they talk about him like he was super hot uh he did have a a really prominent mustache. Oh, did yeah, he have shit. a photograph taken? He has, like... Yeah, I'll show you pictures of him. Why does he look exactly like I pictured him to look? Really? <laughs> Bailey will post a picture on our social media, but... I mean, he's not ugly. He's not hot. He does look like your average dude. She wasn't wrong. Mustache, bowler hat. Think of, like, like a cartoon villain. <laughs> Yes, typical yeah. white cartoon villain. I mean, he's got a good face shape. I can see him being very like charismatic and believable. Yeah, but I don't. I feel like we like for some reason we make murderers out to be like hotter than they are. Yeah, we're like oh, they were so charming and like so. And I'm like, I know people yeah. are like Ted Bundy was so charming. Like honestly, I would just love to Ted Bundy. I'm like Ted Bundy was a solid three. Okay, like. <laughs> Yeah. On a so, good I mean, day. like He's not, like, ugly, but he's just, like, to me, he just looks like a normal guy, you know. Honestly, but, this dude's cuter than Ted Bundy. Well, most dudes are cuter than Ted Bundy. <laughs> Real. <laughs> we're not on the Bundy train. Um, no, we're not. Yeah, I don't know why everyone is so horny for murder. Yeah. Um, Gross. So, speaking <laughs> of murder... And you mentioned Toronto. Um, I'm doing 
the quite real okay i'm not gonna tell you who it is quite yet and i'm gonna try not to like give it away too much so you kind of have like the little element of surprise um but i'm doing the toronto um village serial killer and this was as uh, the time period is like 2010 to 2018 so this is like really recent and i don't know i I did a nice old-timey one you're doing a new. i know i i didn't know how like how i didn't hear about this um so let me ask you this would you rather be able to see the percentage of potential danger that you're in at any given moment, like that TikTok trend, or, uh, oh, but it's only up to 50% and you can't see any higher, or would you rather the only number um, appear over, wait, what, sorry, or would you rather the number appear over others' head when it's over 50% potential danger for you? Like, so I know how dangerous that person is, like, to me? Yeah, like, 50% are over, or you can see where you are at any time, but only up to 50%. So, what I see above, like, what I see over other people, is that they're, like, what a threat they are to me, or is that just how much danger they're in? That's how much danger you're in. Like, they're, they're a threat to you, yeah. I would rather do that. I would rather see how much people are a threat to me. Wait, okay. but would I be able to see like people that are like like emotional threats to me? I just put potential danger. So like, I mean, no, probably physical, um, something that would like. But maybe I don't know. Um, but also like sometimes it could be like somebody who's literally fifty fifty and be just like fifty one percent, and like that's weird, you know? Yeah. Um. Oh, I'd be, I I wouldn't go above 10%. I'd be like, I'm only sticking with people I could definitely best in physical combat. Well, but you can only see it if, like... Oh, I can only see if it's above 50, if it's them. Yeah, 50 or above if it's somebody else. And for you, it's only 0 to, to 50. 50. Okay, yes, I would still rather see other people, because if they're above 50, I'm, like, I'm not taking that chance. That's too high. Right. Yeah. I feel like that could be the better chance... <clears throat> but also I don't know it it might be kind of nice to know like if you see 50 for you or like you're not seeing a reading because like maybe or like it's either just like stuck at 50 or like you don't see a reading for you so you know it might be higher and you're not sure exactly what it is like that could be really useful so I feel like I would go with the other person yeah because that would probably be, like, less of a time. But that's also really scary. Like, and useful, maybe. But... You what might... if I was, like, a 70% threat to you this whole time? And you I had would no idea. have to end the friendship. Um, and then your that's number weird. goes up to 95. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actively holding a knife. You do have no idea where it came from. <laughs> um, so... Like I said, I am doing the Toronto Village Serial Killer. Um, I got this from a TV episode, Pulling Another You. Um, this is called Catching a Serial Killer. It says his name, but I won't say it till the end. Full episode from Oxygen, which is like a Canadian Oxygen, um, show, I believe, maybe? No, it's a, it's a television network. That's well, uh, yeah, I, I knew that. But oh, you mean the, the show is Canadian? Maybe. I don't know. I, I thought Oxygen was different colors. This is yellow and black. I thought Oxygen was like pink and white well they um, recently in the last few years did they, they do a rebranded. rebrand yeah from like kind of like a spinoff of lifetime uh 
which was like more focused on like reality and kind of geared towards like women and then they found out like what women really want is just crime so they've turned into an all true crime network now wild yeah because they used to just be like real housewives now it's true crime yeah baby. okay well and then i guess it's just the old american oxygen um so we have a couple things here okay we have city workers we have a mall santa white hair kind smile affable okay these all things describe a picture of a man who is like a grandpa that you trust however we know that looks only take us so far so we find ourselves in toronto canada and in toronto like any big city there are little neighborhoods and pockets of communities um so they have like a little Italy, Koreatown, and the village. And the village is the LGBTQ plus centered neighborhood. So think painted rainbow sidewalks and rainbow signs that say no hate. Wonderful things like that. So we are introduced to Ju Young Lee, um, who is this like hot and handsome serial homicide expert from the University of Toronto. I'm in love with him. Um, he's still alive. So there could be a chance. Ju Young, you know. Hey, I'm available. I'm cute, mostly. Um, so he used to live about a block away from the village, and he had started hearing about like these whispers of missing men, and this was like a thing that was being spread through the village. So we also meet Haran. Um, oh, he's got a, a long last name, Vijayanathan, um, who is a victim advocate in the episode. Um, he talks about seeing all these men who look like him. They're all of, like, Middle Eastern descent, and he wonders, like, if this is all connected. And he starts to wonder, like, maybe I could be next, you know, because these are guys who look like me. Right. Um, so since 2010, there had been uh, three men missing, and the first was Skanda Navaratnam um, in September 6, 2010. He was last seen leaving with a man from a club, and he was a happy, bubbly person. Um, he was a TA from Sri Lanka. What do you know about this? Yeah, I think I, I, think I do. Maybe, okay. Um, he was living his, like, best gay life, and he... Um, what they say, like, the, so the police say... And that the problem with him missing was that the culture around the village um, is very, like, people come and go with no explanation. So there really wasn't any, like, cause for alarm for someone to just kind of go, like, missing. Right. But I also feel like it's the police just don't care about gay people. Um, so four months later, um, Abdul Basir Faizi in December 29th, 2010 also went missing. He told his wife that he was going to go meet a friend and he was like actually living a secret double life and living his like best gay self in the village. Um, and he was last seen there, never to be seen again. 18 months later, we have our third friend who, um, in October 18th of 2012, um, Majid Kayan went missing and his son reported him missing. He was also living this like other double life and was also last seen to have disappeared in the village so now with three people in like a two-year span now this finally is gaining suspicion from the police um ju young says 
he points out it's very common sign for serial killers to hunt for victims in places that they are familiar with. Um, Haran, who is our victim advocate, um, he had heard the rumors of these guys missing, um, like we said, and what he kind of heard was like these men went back to their wives to live their straight life and already with this culture being so like in and out and like no explanations um this is why they're not being searched for but we know that systemic racism is oh much so more responsible than just you know that we give it credit for and like the nonchalance that comes with missing people with brown skin versus the quick attention when someone who is white goes missing so and um, I mean, in the this is like it started in like 2010, yeah. And like that, there was still like a lot of stigma around being gay too. Yes, and, and being like a person of color and gay at the same time. And these three men are immigrants. Gotcha. Yeah. So we also meet Wendy Gillis. She is a crime reporter for the Toronto Star, and in 2012, she brings up that Interpol, which is like a global hot tip line policing agency. Um, there was a tip that originated in Switzerland, potentially that there was a cannibal working in the Toronto area. And the tip was in reference to an online secret chat room. I, I, do, I know this. I okay. do know this. Um, yes. There was a secret chat room that there were cannibals fantasizing or like confessing things that they did. And the tip sort of matched um, Skanda Navaratnam's like disappearance so that's when police finally decided to kick up the investigation called project houston which was called that in reference to the saying houston we have a problem um love when they develop cute little sayings for murder i know so the police went to switzerland and also like are investigating still in toronto and they found james brunton who was the actual og poster of this like cannibal like ring thing um, so it's like a forum online in toronto yeah um so think like reddit but for cannibals um he became the focus and he had visited toronto a lot and um the village so in search uh, when they like went and like searched all his stuff and like interviewed him they found <laughs> voyeur films of men's hockey teams um, and they discovered that this is, in fact, not a cannibal ring, but a child pornography ring. Oh, and no. he is charged and he pleaded guilty, but he wasn't connected to Skanda or the other two missing men of the village. So, things die down. And a missing it goes back down to just like a missing persons case. We are now in 2013 of June, and Toronto police made a public appeal about the three men. So now we have like a little bit of an uproar with people trying to give information, and we find an email address um, that was linked to Scanda. It was in his phone and his in his notebook in his writing, and the email is silverfox with two x's fifty one at hotmail dot com. So. Silver Fox is identified to be Bruce MacArthur. He was interviewed as a witness in 2013. He is newly out of the closet, and he's like a jovial, portly old dude. He just um, has started a landscaping company, and he was maybe somebody who could give like information on what happened to these guys because um, he was like active in the village, and um, he's in his late 60s. He's a very like helpful, genuine person, they say, and he admitted to knowing Skanda and another missing guy, Majid. And in fact, he hired them both because he needed workers for his new up-and-coming landscape company. 
Um, Bruce had like eventually a hundred clients who like all loved him. He did a great job. And this is when we are introduced to Karen Frazier, who was a client and friend of Bruce, um, who lived by Bruce's sister. She also let Bruce use her um, unused double car garage as a storage space for his landscaping equipment. As long as he did some landscaping around her home, she was like, look, you can use this, but like, you got to make my house pretty. And he's like, you know what? Bet. So she says she remembers um, Skanda, and he was very light and joyful. Maybe it's Skanda. Skanda Navratnam? Skanda Navratnam? Um, But yeah, she said he was, like, very light and joyful, and she talked to him multiple times, and he would laugh, and she would make jokes about Bruce, and Bruce never really caught on and never really understood, like, that they were all laughing at his expense, and um, Skanda would understand right away and she just like loved that dynamic she also remembered majid who was a new member of the whole landscaping community or the landscaping employee team and she said it looked like this man like when she watched him he was just kind of like off in the back and it looked like he had never used a shovel before in his life and he seemed miserable and she asked bruce she's like that'd be us if we did landscaping right we're like i mean which end do you use (laughs) Oh, we it's, have to be outside. We have to do it outside. Oh, outside for this. We're not just sitting. Okay. I thought we were going to look at flower. Okay. I, I can't swim. I'm allergic. I can't swim. I'm allergic. I said sweat. <laughs> oh, that said swim. I was like, landscaping. That's like swimming, right? Um, so we're indoor boys. She said, she asked Bruce, like, how's this guy doing? Like, how is he? Like, how is he working out? And Bruce said, he just isn't working out. He's just not working out. So later she would just kind of like had him on his mind and she was really close to Bruce and she like really liked this guy. They were friends. And she sent an email to Bruce and was like, you know, how's it still going with Majid? And he never replied to that email. And Karen really hadn't seen Majid after that. So she was like, I guess he got fired and it's not really that important. Um, so, we move on to another year. We are in April 2014. Project Houston is now closed and went cold without any explanation. The police claimed to be investigated in it the whole time, but, like, they gave up. They didn't care. It's people of color, gay people of color, immigrants. They're like, I mean, whatever. Like I said, this goes cold until the next two following years, three more men go missing. We have Sarush Mahmoodi, um, who disappeared in August 2015, Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam, and Dean Lysawick in April 2016. So police finally decided, they're like, oh, okay, well, like, three more men went missing, like, I guess we'll look into it. Um, Sarush was also living a double life um, and disappeared in the morning going to work, so no one thought to make like a connection to the village because he had been living this whole double life right so like nobody so knew no one in was... his life knew that he was hanging out yes. in the village okay. yeah um and karushna was an illegal immigrant so there wasn't much to go off of from there um he had no address no nothing um he just kind of you know was trying to make money here and there and then we have dean who was a homeless sex worker now dean was kind of the wild card up to this point um, because he was gay, but he was the only white man this far. Um, and these were all men, like all six of them, really, but especially these three, that were seeking refuge in the village because they could be themselves. And as you know, the LGBTQ is a very accepting community. So 
you know, it's a place to be yourself, right? And let your freak flag fly. So we are now up to April 17th, 2017. And this is weird because it's just, it's really not that long ago. Um, A seventh man went missing, Salim Essen, and he had no address because he was living with his partner. um, And his partner is the one who reported him. And Juyoung kind of pops in and says that serial killers go for vulnerable people, vulnerable people, and after a while they start to get prideful that people aren't finding them out. And this is when sometimes they get sloppy. So, even still with Salim missing, like nobody's really doing anything about this. The police are just like, I mean, yeah, these men are missing, but it's the village, you know, it's the gays. People eh. come and go. Right. But this is where things get kicked up, baby. Because June 26th, 2017, Andrew Kinsman goes missing. And he is a very largely connected LGBTQ person in the village. Um, he had like a set routine and schedule as he was a superintendent at an apartment. And importantly enough, he's white. So, of course... Um, and he's, he's like a quote-unquote upstanding citizen. So he's not just like a sex worker like Dean, so like nobody cared about. Um, it's this guy who's like a big affable guy in the community. So this was the and catalyst. And you're saying this stuff, you're saying it from the perspective of police. Right, from the perspective of the police, yeah. not how we feel. <laughs> no, this is like literally from the perspective of the... the this is from the perspective of the police. Um, so this is the catalyst... Did you know that, like, I know at least in America they used to use, like, this term for, like, sex workers or, like, marginalized communities uh, in police reporting, no persons involved. So, like, if a sex worker was murdered, it would be marked as NPI, no persons involved. What does that even mean? That's wild. They didn't, it means that, like, yeah, they didn't look at these people as people. That's awful. So, like, anyone, like, uh, it... It usually pertained to people living, like, what they considered to be a high-risk lifestyle. Ugh. Did you also know that AIDS used to be called GRID? Gay-related... Yeah. ...something, disease? Gross. Um, yeah. So... Every, everyone should look more into the history of, of policing and marginalized communities. We already know that it's, like, a really dark, shitty history, but uh, there's always more to learn. Yes, there's always more to find out. So, yeah, Andrew Kinsman dying was, like, the catalyst for police to open up this whole investigation again. They did this big meeting in the village with, like, 300 people, and Toronto police are there, and they launch Project Prism, um, which the police deny it, but most everyone agrees that the only reason that this is happening is because of his skin color which is unfortunate but they're looking into it now so andrew kinsman's apartment they search it and they find a calendar that had appointments and things that are like you know just appointment on this day doctor appointment um you know whatever event on this day but at the end of the month on june 26 2017 there is the name bruce we've heard this name before so they looked at the surveillance cameras Um, like everywhere around his apartment and they found one relatively close to Andrew's apartment and even though the quality was like kind of sucky they noticed a man with a red van leaving Andrew's apartment and Andrew getting into that car so they think um, they didn't think it was necessarily like the killer but they knew it was sus and get this Bailey 
They were able to identify the type of van it was. It's a red Dodge Grand Caravan. And you know what car I have? A red Dodge Grand Caravan. You're Bruce. I know. I'm the murderer. Um, So they take the footage to a Dodge dealership and they identify the year. And they ask for a list of all the red Dodge Grand Caravans that have been sold or leased. And they have a list of like a little over 6,000 names in Ontario. Um, Detective David Dickinson, who works for the Toronto Police, was um, at home after leaving court with another murder trial. And he has this whole Excel list of um, all the names. And he's just like thinking and he's kind of thinking about Andrew Kinsman and he's like Bruce like what if I just type in the name Bruce so he types it in and it narrows down from over 6,000 names to five and he looks into oh so he he types it into like the like the database of uh of red dodge caravans Yes, like this. He has this whole Excel spreadsheet of like all six thousand something Red Dodge Grand Caravans in Ontario. For some reason, I thought he was just like typing it into Google. <laughs> just Bruce. Bruce. <laughs> no, um, it's a little bit more uh-huh. thought out than that. Um, so he looks into all five Bruces, and none of them had run-ins with the police except for one. Dear old. Bruce MacArthur. He had been involved in one violent interaction in the back of his van with a unnamed John Doe, for his um, identity did not wish to be revealed. Um, so John Doe was seeing Bruce and only knew him as Bruce, and the documentary labels him as the former boyfriend, but they might have not been like that exclusive. No one really knows. Um, so we're in like June 20th, 2016. Um, before the disappearance of Andrew Kinsman, and Bruce had constantly asked John Doe to have sex in the back of this van, and John was always like, no, I don't want to do it. Like, I just don't want to do it. And finally, one day, he's like, you know what? You've been asking so much. Fine. Let's just have sex in the back of this dumb, stupid van. Um, So when John gets in, he realizes there's a fur coat on the floor, and he's just like, oh, Bruce is laying it there to keep, like, the van clean or for comfort, and they were making out, and this um, Bruce started to, like, pin his arms above his head, which is fun, right? But then he started violently choking John, and John said the encounter lasted about, like, three or four minutes long, and all I could think about, um, he was like, you know, they always say, like, your life flashes before his eyes, but all I could think about was my mom. And I was like, oh, I know. Um, so John finally got his right arm. I was arm. like, do you remember in our Ocean episode... Where the guy, like, his boots got washed away during their shipwreck, and he was, like, all he could think about was how mad his mom would be that, like, or how mad his dad would be that he lost his boots. (laughs) And then he was, like, and all I could think about was, like, how my mom would feel when she realized, like, when she found out, like, I wasn't coming back. Oh, that is so so heart-wrenching. God, I know. And, like, just the fact that he's just, like, thinking about so many things, but, like, in his dying moments, this guy is thinking about his mom. Um, so he finally got his right arm free and clocked Bruce in the side of the head and ended up getting on top of him and then said, like, he was going to call the police and he, like, is sort of, like, choking him, too, and, like, 
reaches for the side like van door like opens it and gets out and bruce drove away but john started to follow him a little while um, and like calling the police but the dispatcher told him to park and it wasn't safe to keep following him so he's like he pulled over um now get this Mm -hmm. john doe goes to the police department but the police didn't take pictures or anything of john which they always do in a like um uh, abuse case like this um but we all know homophobia is a gross thing it exists um bruce get this was actually the one who turned himself in later that night saying it was a misunderstanding and the cops believed him and didn't file anything further and a year later detective dickerson called john doe as he started making all these connections um when he like looks through and like finds the van owner and the, the one guy with the police running and john doe tells him a lot more about bruce um bruce as far as we know was living like a normal life great friends a family he loved he had a good business his clients loved him his clients liked him like he's an upstanding member of the community and we know um sort of like from his past that he had an alcoholic abusive father and bruce used to lock his younger sister in a bedroom to keep her away from the abusive dad um ju young the hot serial killer investigator dude um makes the case that a lot of serial killers who don't have loving connections with family or are scrutinized for being themselves being like lgbt and bruce had to hide it they surmise he repressed it um it's like you know a a reasonable assumption to think like somebody who is abused this much and goes through like this much scrutiny is bound to snap now listen i just want to say bailey and i have been through quite some trauma okay and do you see us murdering people no but look maybe there's some point that we haven't reached where somebody snaps and maybe it's just a certain kind of person but like we're not killing people no you don't know so many children go through so many terrible things and like and then like every almost every queer person like has someone important to them who alienates right and are we murdering people it no no his good life bruce's good life was like a cover for his escapades um he was outed to his wife that he was gay by another member of like the lgbt community there in toronto and this gave him like a big resentment towards the community um as a seemingly like perfect life began to fall apart he moved out divorced and um came to like living as his true self like in the village and um i'm guessing by now we all know bruce is the murderer the police decided to search for his vehicle um, because in this time between like the whole John Doe thing and Andrew Kinsman, um, he sells off his red Dodge Grand Caravan to just like a wrecking yard. And he, um, the, the police are looking for it and they look for it for like weeks and finally find his van that thankfully had not been wrecked yet. Um, which is like very, very lucky. Um, and they analyzed this van for about a month and then found a tiny droplet about the size of the head of a pencil um, that belonged to Andrew Kinsman. So this connected Bruce to Andrew, but not enough to convict Bruce. 
because it could have been very easily explained away in court because, um, you know, they could have just been seeing each other and Andrew had a scratch and, you know, accidentally waved his hand and a little droplet of blood flew through the car. Right. Like it could have been anything. Um, but they still were like following Bruce at length. The police were not too close. So he doesn't like get the hint and destroy any evidence. Um, and they finally get a warrant to search his apartment on December 8th, 2017. Um, they decide to get in and like clone his computer, like copy every single file, every single thing about this computer, like to another computer, which sounds very like movie magic, but I guess it happens. Um, so they're about halfway through, um, because like, so they're halfway through cloning the computer and they have already got like Bruce's schedule down pretty much to a T, but the police who are in the apartment get the tip that Bruce actually is changing up his whole routine and he's coming back to the apartment. So like they have to get out of there. And so the lady, um, Wendy, she's like, it was very like, like movie style. She was like, I wouldn't have believed it, you know, had it not been like a, a real thing. She was like, but they're up to like 50% and um, Bruce is coming back home and they're like, we just got to cancel it. Like we don't know if we have enough time. And, like we're going to run into him. And it's just like this whole like flashing back and forth and back and forth. So they only get about 50% of this computer, but they decide they're going to comb through what they have. And they do find a lot of pictures of men and um, photos of happy times with Andrew, Bruce and Andrew together. And they find ghosts of deleted images of a flyer for Project Houston. Remember, this is the very first um, investigation of the three original missing men. So they finally find a picture of a man who appears to be dead on Bruce's bed. And this is one of the latest victims, Celine Essen. So they can now charge him for murder because they also find a picture of Andrew dead and then the other missing men who appeared to be deceased. Oh my goodness, right? So when he would kill them, he would lay them next to or dress them in the same fur coat that we've heard about and pose them in like kind of vulgar ways. And he enjoyed very much like dominating sexual control, which in healthy doses... Not a bad deal, but when it gets too far, when you gain so much control that you physically end somebody's life, um, and furthermore debase them after they're gone, like, that's fucked up, okay? Like, this is, this is not okay. That's that's not about, that's not about sex, that's about, like, violence, that's about right. that's, Um, like, not kink, that's... No, and these images were never released, thankfully, because I can't imagine, like, the families finding these pictures. Like, who would want to see that? Um, Even if you're not connected, like, you know, why? Um, So, now we're January, we're in January 18th, 2018. So recent. Um, They decided to make an arrest, and Bruce had picked up a guy on the way back to his apartment from the village. And police knew this man's life was most likely on the line. So Bruce lived on the 19th floor of this apartment building. And they... My God. Another movie moment. These police, like, they had to wait for the only one working elevator that stopped on every third floor. I'm like, why didn't you take the stairs? Were there stairs? (laughs) Kind of just ran up 19 flights? Um, 
So they finally get to his apartment after this whole, like, almost comical, like, anxiety-ridden elevator ride. And they knock on the door, and Bruce answers, just very, like, normal. And then they barge in, like, past him, and find the man who is, like, tied up and naked and still alive. And um, though this isn't, like, they say, like, an uncommon sexual practice, like, this most likely would have been the ninth victim, because, like, we know this man's history. Um, So Bruce is arrested, and they do a big, like, search all throughout his apartment, and when they go in, they find a bracelet that belonged to Skanda Navaratnam, a notebook that had a handwriting of Salim Essen, but no bodies, no blood, and no hair. So, the next morning, he was interrogated and politely gave them no real useful information, so he was cordial and conversational, but, like, he didn't give anything. Um, but as you might remember, Bruce was a landscaper, so he had all kinds of access to kill and bury and mutilate people because he had all these kind of tools and he can bury things and landscapers are so easily blended into the background so it's like a perfect guise to get nefarious things done um so now we go back to karen frazier one of his clients right she and she's just like this nice red-haired lady she just like i liked bruce he was a good guy um the police are like, you got to get out of your house because, you know, he he was using her garage. So they're like, we're giving you five minutes. Like, you got to get out of here. And um, we're taking you down to the station. Like, we got to ask you about some things. And she was, like, so taken aback as they're like, look, like, Bruce is a murderer. And, like, you know, what was he doing here? Blah, 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 blah. And she was like, I was blindsided. And, like, all of his friends were, like so blindsided because they're like this was the dude that you would like call up and like go eat a slice of you know and like catch up on a beer just like just great like nice wonderful guy what was hard about it too is that like bruce had this like this seemingly like perfect life at the beginning and like still had this very like good story of like you know he was just kind of like trapped in a marriage even though like he really loved his family he was a good guy and like now he's out and like living out and proud and like he still loves his kids and he works as a mall santa and like he's just like this great guy right and everybody's like we love bruce and like nobody saw the signs because he played his part so very well for so long and so we end up January 21st, 2018, still same year. Um, Karen says she got to go back to her house for a little bit, but there were like media vans everywhere and police and police cars and dogs all searching throughout her house. And the dogs were sniffing all these big planters around the house. Now, they started to find dismembered body parts inside of these planters. And there were like 15 planters on the property. Come on no. now. Yes, ma'am. So what they're able to find out is a lot of these um like these body parts, um, the cause of death that they can surmise from it is that they all pass from manual strangulation, which is like Bruce's hallmark. Um, and Karen said, like, you know, as she really started to like think about it, like how sick this was, she said, and I quote, he wasn't trying to get rid of them like of their body parts by planting them um he was planting them to keep them around himself enjoying the fact that he could eat every day surrounded by his handiwork 
And that's just Ew. so creepy. Ew. Like, I know. Um, so Andrew Kinsman, Sarosh Mahmoodi, and Skanda Navaratnam were the three identified bodies from these planters at Karen's house. Um, but now the police are like, we still have like quite a few other missing people. And he has, like, a hundred clients. So, like, they're going through hundreds of properties, taking out planters. And eventually, they find the remains of the other seven, like, victims. They still find, like, pieces of Skanda and Abdul Basir and Sarush and um, Karushna and Dean and Andrew Kinsman. But they were still missing Majid Kayan. Couldn't find him. They searched hundreds of properties, couldn't find him. And at the end of January, they finally were able to do this excavation behind Mallory Crescent's house. She's a client, and she had this large area behind her house that was sort of like a wooded ravine. Um, But the ground was so frozen, they couldn't dig through it. They couldn't look through it. So they had to wait six months to July 5th um, to be able to do this excavation. Can they not, like, get a drill? Like, can they not get just something I don't know. I think it's just because, like, if they did, like, you know, a big claw, like, construction machine, whatever that's called, like, bulldozer. An excavator. Excavator. Okay. There you go. Um, Like, I think they can't, like, it, like, probably takes out, like, too much of a chunk, and it's just, like, it doesn't work out well, and, like, the ground is, like, pretty frozen. Um, So it's just hard to find things through it. But July 5th, they're excavating, and they... Lo and behold, find the remains of Majid, who is buried in a large trash bin. Karen remembers that this was the man that she had witnessed with the shovel, who had looked like he never used it before. And what upset her the most, she said, was that the last moments of these men, like, it wasn't the bodies that upset her. It was thinking about, like, the last moments and, like, the connections and these lives that these people had and Bruce had so selfishly taken their moments away. And... So, Bruce ended up pleading guilty to all counts. So, there was literally no trial. Um, Wendy Gillis, she was the reporter for the Toronto Star, crime reporter. She said, he looked harmless, but now we know that that doesn't really mean anything. Nobody looks like a serial killer, necessarily. And she says, in Canada, there is no death penalty. So, he was given a life sentence and won't be eligible for parole for 25 years until he's, like, 91. He's not there yet. Um, this is the harshest sentence that he could be given. Um, so he's still there, I think. I mean, unless he died randomly, I don't know. But, like, he's still there living out his life sentence. Um, so my crush, Ju Young Lee, um, ended the episode all with this. He said, When we talk about serial killers like Bruce, certainly the nature of his crimes indicate that he enjoyed having control and power over other people. And he got on to men- he went on to mention that he had all this like repressed resentment towards his family, society, the gay community. Um, and he says, and I quote, we sometimes think of about sexual serial killers motivated by sex itself, but like Bailey mentioned earlier, but the sex often represents power. They feel like God and they have total control over another human being, and that power is so seductive, so tantalizing. And, and that, so stupid. I know. So Fuck stupid, you, too. Bruce. That's no reason. Um, so, yeah, that is the story of a very recent serial killer, Bruce MacArthur. Can you say all the victims' names one more time? Abdul Basir Faizi, 
Majid Kayan, uh, Kayan sorry, um, Skandanavaratnam, Sarush Mahmoodi, Andrew Kinsman, Salim Essen, Dean Lisowick, and Karushna Kanagaratnam. It's hard, like, this one really did kind of, like, hit me in the soul, because, like, it's, it's sad to just think of, like, all these men who, because, like, I know what that's like to, you know, finally get a chance at, like, living your own life, or, like, you know, exploring your own natural, like, desires and wants, and then to have that all just, like, ended by some selfish, like, awful person. Yeah. And, like, to think that it just happens to, like, so many people. Like, not even serial killers. Like, it just... So many unfortunate people, and especially, like, people of minorities. And just... I kind of, like, you know, I after I got done with my report, it just kind of sat with me real heavy. And I was like, man, it's just, it's sad. It's very sad. It is. I'm not going to cry. Haha, <laughs> 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 for once, you're the one crying. <laughs> it's always me. Can you imagine if, like, they tried to pull off this police work in the 1800s? Oh, <laughs> they would have given up. They would have given up the first one. They would have been like trying to to copy his diary down by hand before right. he got oh back. Oh my god! <laughs> At that point, take the diary. Like, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. The fact that they found like that speck of blood that was I like no. I'm like man. Like on. I think they still might have gotten to Bruce. Like maybe. Um. I mean, the blood was helpful but they still were like the warrant and his computer was like what really got him yeah so but still like eight years eight years it took to get this man and it should have no there's no reason why it should have no it should have been with the first one you know yeah, and I think that happens so many times where, like, it shouldn't have gone on as long as it did. That is the tragedy. That is it. That is, that's an added layer of tragedy is that so many times it happens much longer than it than it should have or that it needs to. And I, I mean, so, but, you know, pay attention to the people that you love. Look out for your friends. Take care of each other because at every every life does matter every person does matter and there are selfish evil people who will take that away for absolutely no reason so that's what makes it a scary world out there so hold on to those you love bye bye <laughs> good you're never gonna say that right <laughs>